Frank Lloyd was Undersecretary of State for Global Affairs from 1998 to 2001. His portfolio included human rights, the promotion of democracy, refugee issues, international law enforcement and counter-narcotics, and the environment. He served as Chief U.S. Climate Negotiator. He was a senior official in the State Department as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Affairs and Director of the Office of Refugee Affairs. He served in the Obama campaign as co-leader of the Energy and Environmental Team. He was president of the German Marshall Fund of the U.S. He has been chair of numerous nonprofit boards, including the Environmental Defense Fund and Resources for the Future, and serves on the boards of the Nature Conservancy, EDF, and a number of climate change-related organizations. It's with great delight to welcome Frank Loy to our Business and Society podcast series. With Mia Fong. So Bruce, you know Frank Lloyd for almost 40 years and can really speak to the breadth of his achievements since you made him the subject of your book, Swallowing the Earth Whole, The Lives of Frank Lloyd and Steve Percy. And I guess your friendship goes back to 1984 when Frank was CEO of the German Marshall Fund? Correct. And he was generous to many people, but I was writing a book on hazardous waste management and he was running a group of transatlantic perspective people. So Frank attached me to a translator, Mariana Ginsburg, and off the lawyer and I went to study in Europe, thanks to Frank. And Frank, I want to thank you for that in public. After that, I was bold enough to ask Frank to come and speak to 50 companies. And during that presentation to our corporate affiliates program, he created a wonderful slide about what he could do with his life, considering that he was not a scientist, nor was he extremely wealthy. And I wanted to start by saying that he created a chart where he said you can either work for advocacy groups, and Frank has been the chairman of the Board of Environmental Defense Fund. You could advance knowledge through, like we said, where he funded research through the German Marshall Fund. And lately, he's most known for his government service in the State Department, but also now known for investing in innovative firms and innovative investors. Frank. Are you primarily a diplomat or do you see yourself as many things like all that different type of work you've done in your life? I don't think of myself as a diplomat because that was not my profession. I spent some very fruitful years in that, but I distinguish that from people who go into that and believe that to be their lives. On the other hand, some of the things that I did while I was in the Department of State are things that you would do in corporate life and in public life, that is, bring people together to an objective that you agree on. For example, early on when we were designing a, an international organization that would run the satellite system for transatlantic and transpacific communications, different countries had different uh, objectives. And the African countries wanted to have connection. Above all, they wanted to connect with the rest of the world easily and not have to go through to Paris or London as they did when we were using Anderson cables. The United States wanted to run the show if it could because it was technologically ahead. And the Europeans wanted to catch up technologically. So you had different objectives, but all centered on one goal, that is get a transatlantic Trans-Pacific satellite communications network set up. Network set up. Different from other negotiations. That's not different from corporate negotiations. You have to take into account all the different views and so forth. 
But in a sense, it's just the same ironing differences for a common goal, identifying that common goal. That's something that you all have to do in every line of work. Absolutely. Frank, another thing that I want to get a sense of is how much you think about social coherence as well as the end game of the negotiation. You seem to have succeeded both in government, business, and aspects of society. This premise that you're not really a person who only sought wealth or self-aggrandizement, that you from the start thought about the Commonwealth. Did you learn that during your Harvard law degree or when you were working in law firms or was it brought up in you as a child? I did focus on the art of negotiation when I was in law school and good lawyers do that. I think negotiating in a fashion that reaches acceptable goals is one of the things you pay them for. There was a book, Getting to Yes, I believe was the name of the book. Uh, written by a professor that really interested me a great deal and influenced me a great deal because I've spent a lot of time negotiating and getting the yes, figuring out a way to get to an acceptable result. It's not an art, it's a skill, and it's a skill that you're not born with, a skill that you get as you practice. Sort of an athlete. Yeah, I think that was a famous book called Getting to Yes, and I can't remember exactly when I accounted it, but I was working with Governor Mario Cuomo on radioactive waste issues in New York State from the war, from Werner von Braun. And we brought in a descendant of that author from Harvard, a guy called Larry Susskind, who took the same getting to yes principles and talked about helping groups understand the best alternative to a negotiated agreement sometimes so that you actually sweeten the pot for social advantage rather than just the groups of parties, you know, one versus two. When you're in the State Department and you're working as you did, Frank, with refugees or on atmospheric issues or climate issues, you have so many stakeholders. So what's your advice to future generations to think about how to make forward motion with multiple stakeholders as opposed to an illegal agreement between two opposed parties? I think it's not structurally different, okay. it's more complex, but it doesn't change the need that, I think the first thing you have to understand is you have to understand why the other side takes the position it does. For example, in climate negotiations, you get an island country or a developing country, and that is really standing in the way of progress. And you say to yourself, holy cow, these people are going to be hurt if we don't address this issue. And yet they're giving us difficulty in trying to move forward. The first thing you think about is this just some guy on the other side of the negotiating table being a difficult guy. But actually, if you think about that, there is a, a very good reason why they're difficult and, and they will express it in different ways. And you've got to really listen to that with an open ear. You have to recognize that they're not just talking, they're not just being difficult, but they have a problem. And in the case of developing countries, the problem is that they don't have much money. I mean, their basic proposition that rich countries got rich by using a lot of the sources of energy that causes climate change, and they ought to pay for it because they benefited from it. That's not irrational. It's not doable. You got to 
make it clear that at some stage that's not going to work if they're not going to participate. If India is not going to participate in the world climate effort, it's not going to be successful because India is not a small actor. But legitimacy is, and recognizing legitimacy of the other side is really key to getting anything done. And they have a legitimate gripe. So you have this ability to listen deeply and to discern why a person is entrenched in a position and how to get them out of the trench. There is a common argument in education that leaders are people who can keep two contradictory concepts in mind at the same time and find a resolution. In studying your life, it seems to me that you keep three contradictory variables in mind at the same time. The need of the business, the need of the government, and also the need of society at large. Of course, the current ESG movement in corporate America is an articulation of what you're suggesting. And it is a very legitimate and very important development in our corporate life. But what it does is rather simple. It reflects the proposition that corporations only do well if the society does well. And the corporation's ability to influence whether society does well or not is remarkably great. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see it in the social media platform, for example, at the moment. It's, it's a complicated subject. But the notion that one of the important things that's happened in the last year, I think, is the burial of the Friedman doctrine that the only thing the board of directors needs concern itself about, or the principal thing, is is the shareholder uh, improvement in their value. And that is short-term thinking on steroids, because it is simply not going to be possible for corporations to be healthy if they don't uh, think more broadly than that. But that's a revolution. Friedman's view that the only thing that matters is the bottom line benefit to shareholders now, that was gospel. And that no longer is gospel. I think quite a few corporations still operate on that principle, but quite a few don't. And even the investment community, like Larry Fink and others, beginning to articulate their position in that funeral. In the three or four decades I've known you, I think of you as both extremely logical and rational and a deep listener, but also passionate. So I'm interested in your reaction to Bertrand Russell's claim that a life cannot be successful so long as it is merely about intellectual convictions. It must be deeply felt, deeply believed, dominant, even in dreams. I think that's a statement about passion and spirit that I see in you. Would you think that's something that you cultivate as you approach a new complexity, or do you think I'm maybe being a little too romantic here? I don't normally associate the term romantic with you actually. And, and I think it's a, that's a little highfalutin, probably, for, for a description of how I come about my views. I, I do think uh, fairness, in whatever realm we're talking about, it's got to be at the top of your list of what you strive for. And so I don't know if that's a, simply a, a negotiating technique or whether that's really something internally felt. I was asking myself when I listened to your question, whether my, the fact that I came to the United States and became a citizen, wasn't born that way, and that 
I felt in this country some obligation to pay back. I think that's part of it, but I don't think it really is fundamental to the notion that th this country and any country, but focused on this country, at the moment it has a crisis of different parts of the country not believing the other country, the other part has any legitimacy or any good ideas. That's a very hard position to be in at the moment. It's going to slow us down, but it is certainly based on the proposition that you need to have an empathy for what others think about, what others believe, what others strive for. I wanted to follow up on how we determine fairness. It's so hard to determine fairness. As you say, we come to these arguments with our emotions. And sometimes I wonder, can we program into our artificial intelligence system an element of humanity that helps us decide these things that we don't seem to progress? I don't think there's a technological solution to the problem of instilling fairness, the quest for fairness in people. I think right now, I think our fairness problem is the product of a couple of things. One is Ronald Reagan's notion that government is the problem rather than the solution. And I think in the past and in European societies, the government is used by consent of pretty much the country that is used to enable fairness among different classes of the country. And government's intervention is welcomed. Here, there is a part of our society that really does buy the Ronald Reagan notion that government is the problem. And I think it, the opposite of government, in some sense, is a kind of economic jungle where the fittest do well and everybody else does badly. That's not a long-term solution that is going to hold. Well, Frank, it seems to me that in addition to the empathy imperative that you mentioned about listening deeply and finding out how to aid from understanding the other's positions, you're now talking about the role of government as an enabler of social good. Who are your heroes? What countries should we look for and what countries are models? And a lot of us here are struggling with climate solutions. So is there something we can look to in Europe, say 55, or something we can look to in a particular set of leaders that help us get past the Ronald Reagan anti-government kind of thinking? I'm going to answer that somewhat indirectly, um, give you an example of a time when I was at the German Marshall Fund. And it seemed to me the, the German Marshall Fund is a U.S. European, not a U.S. German institution. And we seek to bring ideas from one side of the Atlantic to the other. And it seemed to me that the European system, whereby many high school age students would go to a, not an academic high school, but a practical high school. They have names for that. And that as a result, they had a workforce that earned very good wages, was relatively fully employed. And we had a lot of students that didn't get very far and ended up impoverished and without skills. So I said, if the Europeans got an idea that seems to work and it seems to work, we ought to copy it. And so I persuaded the Chief Justice of the United States, who was very interested in the subject, not from having to decide cases on, but just because he was interested, 
Warren Berger, I persuaded him to put together with me a group of American legislators from states and others to study the European model. And we did. And we came back with a 22-page report as to how the Europeans did it and how the Americans could state and local level copy that so that you would have less unemployment and you would have a class of citizens that earned decent wages doing jobs that needed to be done. Basically, we bailed. We brought in state legislators. We brought in people from companies. And I didn't see the adoption or even the partial adoption of any of the European ideas, even though we had the chief justice flogging them and talking about them in his speeches. Yeah, we had done an interview, Frank, with the great book writer, James Fallows, where he talks about how America is based on disorder and how Japan is based on order. And that culturally, he was very interested in how the American way is a lot of structure in government. You have this European background that I think listeners should know about. And to make it concrete, today in environmental, social, and governance debates, the social element is developing very rapidly. So for example, the question of when you're having a child in a corporation, should you get six weeks off or in some Scandinavian nations, not only does the woman get close to a year off, but even the husband can get time off, right? So that the difference between how the tax base of the European government supports that ever critical next generation of nurturing. The issue of ESG has broadened to where some European principles are beginning to infiltrate the greater global companies that are offering more maternity leave. Do you see that as an example of European influence into the corporate world? Not necessarily into American government, but the corporate world. No, I do see it that way. And the question is whether that introduction of those ideas is a major and a, and a big movement or whether it's a sideline in this modest movement. That's one of the things Calvin Investment spends a lot of time studying is how, how to bring in uh, greater access to social benefits within the corporate sector. The debate about how Amazon treats their associates versus how some of the high-tech firms treat their associates. But anyway, getting back to Europe, you've already been chairman of the NGO called Eco America. Uh, you've been serving the group Environmental Defense Fund as chairman for a while. You helped the Center for Environmental and Energy Solutions, C2ES, you were on their board. You also helped select the current CEO of Environmental Defense Fund by being a chairman. And most importantly, or in addition, even today, you're actively on the board of an investment group called Terra Alpha Fund. So with all of that, I'm trying to figure out the role that your birth in Germany and upbringing in different European nations played before you got to California. So could you tell, at least fill in the background as to why and how you were born, what you developed in your early countries that you lived in and how you wound up in California at such a young age. We can do that very quickly. I was born in Southern Germany where my family on both my mother's and father's side had lived for many generations and um, born into a rather well-off family. Uh, both my father and mother were part Jewish. 
I started to school there in grammar school. And when the Nazis came in, I was sent to boarding school in Switzerland and for a year. And then shortly thereafter, with my father, moved to Italy. When Italy became part of the Axis, we came to the United States and came to California. And if the question is, how does that impact any thinking or decisions or attitudes or views that I have now? I'm not sure I know, but I think the answer is not much. That is, I grew up pretty much an American kid with American friends and American colleagues and American schooling and American jobs. So that I don't, it may sound maybe dismissive, but I don't think that really had much to do with most of my views. No, it's very interesting. So you wind up in California. I forgot the exact date, but you and your brother are quite young and you wind up going to UCLA. If you could just help us understand the things that are happening in your mind and in your ambitions before you wind up at Harvard Law School. No, it's just very interesting to that point that you feel your upbringing in Europe didn't influence your thinking, but perhaps as you travel, did that help you with your negotiation skills internationally? Maybe, but I don't really think so. I think in my mind, looking backwards, I had a, the important period of my education and upbringing is all in the U.S. It's from the age of 10 or 11. And my father died shortly after I, we arrived in the United States. I was brought up in a, quite an American household. My brothers went to war, World War II. It was a very American setting. And from a relatively early age with relatively modest European influences. So I don't think that's a factor. Was the wealth transferred from Europe to America or did you start off again like the Ben Franklin story? You're 10 years old, your brothers are going to war, you're in California, it's the whole new world for you. Uh, it is just a little piece of the biography that was the wealth that you had in Europe in the family transferred to America or was some of it lost in the transfer? It's pretty much all lost. And so I did start out relatively well off in Europe and relatively poor in Los Angeles. And more, and you know, my father died a year and a half or so after we arrived there. And I was brought up by an American woman that my family, the rest of my family hired to, to bring us up. And I was in a very American household almost from the time that we arrived in Los Angeles. No, I don't, I can't connect that to any particular views or any particular attitude. And since that time, we have 5 billion more people on the planet since then. And so as you reflect on the problems that we have today and the need for accelerated change, I'm wondering what changes do you prioritize that we need to focus on? Well, I mean, we have a number of problems, but two of them are war and then one country by another. We see that at the very moment. But the one that is relative, that is new, that, that we didn't have a word for when I grew up, we did, certainly didn't understand when I grew up, is environmental consequences. And we have gone from not understanding that to understanding it pretty well, but having a difficult time responding appropriately to that threat. And when I decided I would spend some time in the nonprofit sector, it was my wife who said, don't diddle around with a whole bunch of things. 
focus on something that you care about and spend both time and your money on that. And so I picked the environment because it seemed to me it had a rather unusual and unique combination of social, economic, political, technical, scientific elements to it that made it a really interesting, complex issue. And shortly after making that decision, I met a guy named Michael Oppenheimer, who was a atmospheric, he was then an atmospheric scientist out of Harvard, working for the Environmental Defense Fund. He is now and has been for many years at Princeton University. He's the first guy that mentioned climate change to me. And I am scientifically not very knowledgeable, but the way he described it, that sounds like a big deal. We're talking about something like 1980, a long time ago. And heeding my wife's advice, don't do all that often, I focused on environmental issues, particularly on climate change. And that's how I got to the Environmental Defense Fund, because at that time, it was one of the few organizations that had a scientist that focused on that, Mr. Oppenheimer, uh, and, and one of the few organizations that was comfortable in working with the whole spectrum of America, left and right, business and non-business, in order to address problems. And this problem, clearly, it seemed to me one that a small environmental organization couldn't do much about it unless it established connections with others, including the business community. Tell the story, because I found it interesting in researching your life to write the book about how you were chairman of the Environmental Defense Fund when you all found the great leader, Fred Krupp, and how he wasn't necessarily what you were pushing for. I think that process would be interesting to hear how you listened deeply to the opportunity. I mean, the real hero of that story is the search firm that we hired. But I was chair of this organization, this small, good organization, the Environmental Defense Fund. We had to make a change in our CEO. I had on my board uh, a headhunter, a woman who did, did that for a profession. And so I asked her to put together a committee to search for a new CEO, and she did. And it took forever because she did it very well, but very meticulously. And everything took twice as long as it should. And in the meantime, we had no head of the organization and it was not a good deal. So they came today for a meeting of the search committee and we were going to be presented with three candidates. And I called every member of that search committee and I said, we've got to make a decision on this date. We can't delay it any longer. So go into this meeting with intention of picking the best of those three candidates that we will see. We had the meeting. We looked at three candidates. They were all male in their 40s or so. They were all qualified. They were good. We had a discussion about which one of them was best. We agreed on X being the best of the three. And then the search firm representative who was there said, I, I don't think you should make a decision at this meeting because I have found another guy that in a sense meets your standards even better than the one you've just talked about. 
Oh, I was furious because we were so close to a decision and we were about to walk back from that decision. But we did. We walked back from that decision. And then we interviewed the candidate that the search firm was referring to. And that was Fred Kruk. And we agreed that he met our needs better than the others. And we finally hired him. But the getting there was a rocky path. I just think it's a wonderful story about the power of patience and also the graceful pivots. And now EDF is probably three to five times as big as it, what it was when you appointed, for, right, Fred? I would say it is. So it mattered that you found the right leader. But that's a wonderful story about the c complex process of working boards and working teams. Steve Percy calls you Mr. Chairman in his mind, because you can deliver that type of team play that you can coach that type of process. Here, you're the chairman saying, we have to decide which of these three, and then you go against your own instinct and find a new guy who's younger and better. So it's a story of a kind of creative openness in a very complex process. One more story in the EDF chairmanship, which deals with what Bruce is talking about not too many years after that, we had a meeting of the board in Colorado and the staff of EDF asked us to actively oppose a proposed nomination to the Supreme Court from Ronald Reagan's administration, Justice Bork. The staff asked us to oppose that because he would be bad for the environment in their opinion. We were a very determined bipartisan organization, and that still is true, and that was true then. And in my opinion, it's really important if you're going to expect to get anything done, you're going to be less effective if your view is captured by one party rather than the other. But opposing a Supreme Court nomination made by a Republican president with the entire staff in favor of that move was a tough thing to do, but we decided to do it. So we had this meeting and I announced at the outset of the meeting that there would be a two-hour discussion and the staff would give us their views and the members of this board could give us their views. And at that time, we were going to make a decision. And, and then I said, I don't think we should go against the staff, except if we have a significant majority of members of the board wanting to do that. And anyway, we then had two hours of discussion. I called for a vote and announced that while there seemed to be something of a vote that would not follow the advice of the staff and would not oppose it, that wasn't overwhelming. And in accordance with the ground rules, I said it had to be overwhelming. And so therefore we were going to go along with the staff. And that got us out of a difficult board versus staff position and worked well. And you've worked on five administrations. That was during the Reagan administration. For us, those of us who haven't been able to be on the inside, what your reflections are on the Carter, Clinton, and Bonma administrations and others, their leadership and delegation styles, and how did you navigate these administrations to put forward issues that were close to your heart? Well, you were hired for a particular job, and so you, you deal with the issues that you're assigned. In a number of the positions I had, the politics of the president were not relevant particularly. For example, in the early days of my work on international aviation and telecommunication negotiations, I started working for a Democrat 
Democratic administration. I stayed on into a Republican administration. And I don't think in those instances, our views changed much. On the other hand, when we came and it came later on to environmental and when I had a position that required us to take views and positions on environmental and climate issues, that the administration views were very different and it would be very difficult to work for a Republican administration. So it depends very much at what level you're working and what the issues that you're working on. But it isn't true that in every case, when the administration changes, the various positions change. For example, I testified in favor of adopting the Law of the Sea Convention. We don't need to go into what that implies. And I did that with for way at a time when there was a Republican administration, at the time there was a Democratic administration. And we lost both times. We still have adhered to that convention. We all think about how we're going to feed our planet. And I was curious about your insights. I believe you worked on trade on genetically modified agricultural projects. Yeah, I did. And that was a case where I broke with the bulk of the environmental community, or at least a large part of it, which viewed genetic modification is wrong. And my position was genetic modification could be right or could be wrong. It depends on a lot of specifics. And above all, I said, food insecurity is going to be a big issue. This was quite a while ago. We said the administration just yesterday or day before named a special envoy for food insecurity in the department because it is clearly going to be a huge issue in the next decade or so. But that time, when you talked about, you had to feed people, and it may be that genetic modification actually is helpful in that regard. The science community bought that, but most of the environmental community did not. We did negotiate an agreement, and we took a lot of grief from the environmental community for doing so. And climate migration is also closely linked, of course, inability for farmers and others to feed themselves. And you also worked as a director of the State Department's Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration. What are your thoughts as you reflect on the situation today and how we can resolve these issues? You're absolutely right. It's going to be a huge issue as millions of People are going to have to move or have to find food elsewhere than they have been for millennia. So it's a really major issue that's going to dominate our thinking for some time. So is there a magic answer? No, there's no magic answer. The the best answer is to slow climate change because you can't make up for the kind of losses you're going to incur you can't make up easily for the kind of losses of land, water, fresh water that you're going to incur with the change of climate. So it's every bit as important as, as you can imagine. And I'm not relating that to the genetic modification issue, but if that issue arose today, when it arises again in some fashion, I think the fact that we are in a crisis will affect the outcome. One of the things that I've been noticing in studying your decisions and your process is how you are a environmentalist, but you're also willing to break rank with inherited positions. Your use of science helps clarify some of your decisions. What are the role in your mind of reading in the humanities? I think that 
when I have visited your home and I see your wife as a painter and I see a room full of great books, me and I are interested in the subject of leaders who can navigate both business and society. Do you have any thoughts for future students about the role of studying humanities besides law or science? I do have a view about reading things to broaden your viewpoint and to broaden your outlook. But quite frankly, most of the reading that I do is in nonfiction rather than in fiction. My wife reads a lot of fiction. But I find either one to be opening minds that otherwise are not so open. We actually belong to a book club that reads only nonfiction books one a month. And my views on things have changed dramatically as a result of books that I've read that had nothing to do with anything I was doing. We read a book recently about the role of the East India Company in a private corporation, for-profit corporation in running India. I, I do think uh, reading outside of your knowledge comfort zone is important. If you're going to be able to handle new ideas, new views, you ought to get out of your comfort zone. And you can do that, I think, with either the, the arts or you can do it with nonfiction literature. The thing that I learned from studying some of the humanities when I shifted from pre-med to doing a dissertation on Walt Whitman and the American Essence of Nature is how important worldview is, really, the study of a person's attitude. We began our discussion with you talking about how to help find a middle ground or how to help negotiate complex situations. And I would be interested in how you use wit and language to help people come out of their box, come out of their delusionary positions. I've noticed you in action as often making a person feel at ease with wit. You disarm things. I don't remember if the book Getting to Yes talks about those psychological or humanistic uses of language to help a person. But I am reminded of the great French thinker Voltaire when he says, illusion is the first of all pleasure. And I think in so many issues, people find it more pleasant to be deluded. So part of the job I've seen in your career is to help groups of people navigate into a socially coherent solution as opposed to an illusion. Do you think that's part of what you do instinctively, or is it just a byproduct of me as an outsider watching how you disarm inaccuracies, for example? I don't think you do it instinctively. I, I wouldn't use that term in describing the arguments you use to get a coherent position. But we had, in going back to climate for a moment, we had a very interesting assignment because the United States in the Clinton administration signed the protocol that was to govern the efforts of the world to reduce carbon emissions. And the problem with that protocol was that it was an important, desirable step forward, but it was very clear that half the world was not going to participate. The developing world was excused from acting and the developed world had theoretical punishments. So one of the things we had to do was to basically take account of the fact that the Kyoto Protocol that had been signed 
was not going to become the world system because a number of countries wouldn't ever adhere to it. And among the problems of the Kyoto Protocol were first that it basically excused all developing countries from any action. It was a first effort and, a, and it was a, an important effort, but it was clear that was not going to be the future path of reducing greenhouse gas emissions from world's countries. But either they wouldn't join it or they wouldn't be cajoled into doing what they're supposed to do by the punishments of, that were in this agreement. So we had to keep the same goal, but change radically how we went about it. And we did that in various ways by making a lot of things voluntary that were mandatory before, because in reality, the mandatory wasn't going to be effective for one instance. And so the trick was to keep the goal and change the method. That's a pretty dramatic change. And we did that in the early days of the Clinton administration, as we negotiated a way, kept the goal in our sights clearly, but change the way of getting there. I think a lot of the Paris Accord and a lot of the international agreements now regarding climate change derive from that early work you did during the Clinton administration, so that a lot of the European leadership now also has been stimulated by that. One of the things that I think we need in order to really get a carbon tax passed at some point or some substantial infrastructure advanced in Congress is both military support in favor of climate action and also the support from doctors. Do you think there's other major constituencies that weren't there during the times when we were working climate issues during Clinton? It seems to me that the military is now more painfully aware at places like Tinted Air Force Base of the danger of climate storms and coastal infusion. Doctors are now beginning to say that uh, climate change is a public health issue such as with asthma or breathing problems in urban settings. Do you see that there have been advances in the military and in the medical community? And if you have, what are the missing pieces before we can get a majority of people behind a carbon tax? I think the military gets it, gets the risks of climate change, and it's been there for some time. I think they have been ahead of the rest of our institutions for some time. I was uh, this last weekend, I was out in California with the former Secretary of the Navy, Mr. Ray Mabus, who's also former governor of the state of Mississippi, and talking about it, just that. And there's no question in my mind that the military is helpful rather than holding back steps on climate change. The rest of the society unfortunately, is quite split. And when you talk about who are the uh, possible influential people, I would say I agree with you about, I think you meant the medical profession, and I agree with that. A second profession that I think is key to getting action is the faith community. Interesting. And the third category that I think is important important is the local government community. People trust their minister or their rabbi. People trust their local doctor and their local hospital. They, people trust their neighborhood commissioner or their 
member of the city council, local government officials, or even possibly members of the state assembly. They trust those because they sort of connect with them. And I think those are three categories that we need to influence in order to get across the notion that this is a really big problem we have to address now, and it's not a party problem. It's not a Democratic or a Republican. What about investors? Why do you serve on the Terra Alpha Fund, and why is there some rumblings within the SEC suggesting that climate disclosure will move money rapidly towards superior technology? What do you do at Terra Alpha and what do you believe is happening in the investment community? The word about Terra Alpha, because it's a special case, and then more broadly, Terra Alpha was born when the founder of it and I had similar experiences in different situations. We both served on an investment committee and an organization that wanted to do the right thing, good thing, and they decided they would take 10%, or in one case, 15%, of their portfolio and invested in good stocks, people, companies that did good things. And then when we asked them, what about the other 85% of the portfolio? And the answer was, we're going to invest that in the market. That doesn't seem like an appropriate answer to the threat of climate change. And that seemed like there must be a better way than Terra Alpha works on the assumption that the rest of the market that includes everything, good stocks, bad stocks, and concrete business, that they can be better or worse. And that it would be good if they were better. And better would be tested by efficient use of water, efficient use of materials, and efficient handling of waste, those kinds of tests. And so that's the idea of using funds to change behavior of certain corporations, but you can't just focus on the worst and take them out of your portfolio and think you've done much because I don't think you have. Do you think that the segment of educated women are mission critical? You mentioned the faith family, you mentioned medical doctors trusted, you mentioned the local government elected official. What about educated women or what about other segments in order to get over the hump of climate? I think young people are better and women are better than men. We've had enough uh, surveys that to demonstrate that pretty surely. I think we have to build on that. I think the young people will somewhat take care of itself as time goes. I think we have to accelerate the whole process and we have to work on an influential people that can influence others. One of the sad things in the dealing with climate change is that Al Gore who was so articulate and so knowledgeable in raising this issue early on, is simply not somebody that is an effective spokesperson for people that are very much tied to the Republican Party. He, after all, was a Democratic vice president. He was a Democratic candidate for president. So he is very knowledgeable and very right for some audiences and very wrong for other audiences. And so we need spokespersons that deal with these other audiences. And I think your neighborhood pastor is a great example because he has status. He's earned the status by his or her behavior and his or her role over the years and getting people like that involved in understanding and promoting action on climate change 
is important. When I was writing my little biography about your exceptional life, I talked to a number of background people and one of your unnamed friends told me, Mr. Frank Loy only has one degree, one gear that's moved forward. It seems to me in watching the way you structured your personality, you do like forward motion and you don't spend a lot of time on past mistakes. Is that a piece of advice you give to people who become slowed up by the bitterness of life? I try not to give advice to those people because they yawn halfway through. It seems to me that you have an extraordinary possibility in your personality because you're both down to earth and humble, but also incredibly effective. You move lots of different types of people. You find pleasure in what you do, that you're not doing it out of some kind of heavy obligation. Do you think that there is a mix of pleasure in that deep down you like people? Dostoevsky said, I think rather accurately, that we are all in paradise, but we refuse to see it. There are so many problems in the world, Frank. There's so much social distress. But in order to achieve the forward momentum and the social coherence that your life personifies, we have to believe in the future. We have to believe we're going to get there. So that's a question of optimism, isn't it? I, I think that's absolutely true. That is, you just even when optimism is perhaps not justified, not appropriate, not realistic, you have to focus on as much of that as you can, because otherwise you're going to be out of the game. Prophets of doom and gloom seldom get their way. They don't change things if that's all that they offer. Well said. You can see that even in the history of the prophecy of Micah and Jeremiah. As you reflect on your years in service, and how do you think the perception of the United States has changed over the years? Uh, you've been involved in democracy building projects. Of course, there's sometimes cynicism to these projects. What can we do to improve the perception of the United States overseas? I think the United States' role in climate change is a very big factor in the way other countries view us. But it's mixed. It's not all positive, but some of it's quite positive. People understand that we're serious about it, even if it's some of our statistics wouldn't demonstrate that. So I would say the subject matter of climate change is very important in the way that the world views us. And there are some that are very critical of us, as they should be, but it's a more nuanced response. And I think as we go forward, as we recognize that we have a global problem, which we can't fix on our own, it is very important that we establish the kind of the moral position that we have had in other areas that will permit us to lead. I will say this, that probably our response to the war in Ukraine is a positive. That is, we moved in with some vigor to oppose a regime that was trying to invade another country. That was not a negligible act, and I think that has helped. Frank, it, we wanted to end this discussion about Ukraine and Putin. What is your philosophy about companies like BP or Disney or Canadian Air and the other 150 when they now have taken business away from Russia, BP taking away their two board members, Bernard Looney and Bob Dudley, taking away billions of dollars of investment in 19% of Rosnov, et cetera, et cetera. What is your philosophy about when capitalism takes on punishing 
a, a despot. Is that a new development or has that been always part of the world? Well, I think we have some lessons from World War II, from that era. And if you think that Russia's use of aggression against other countries is similar to what we experienced in the 1930s, then you'd have to say that the business community is right in reacting very aggressively against Russian moves. And maybe some people think over-aggressively. I, I would say not over-aggressively. That is, I think there is a theory, in, which we don't need to dwell on right now, that the business community was extremely helpful to Nazi Germany in establishing the powers that permitted it to wage the war that it did. If that's correct, then I think the business community has an obligation to say, if we have a similar situation, we don't want to make that same mistake. And I think that's what companies have said. They may not have articulated that, but that's what they've done. I'm not sure how much uh, the financial pressures are showing results. I think that's great. But Jeffrey Sachs' position is that we have to buy for uh, a negotiated peace, perhaps maybe moving too rashly. It doesn't give a position for Putin to enter into negotiations when it's backed up against the wall. All right. If the position is that we, we, we want to make it possible for Putin to negotiate if he wants to, that's one thing. And then maybe you hold back on some action that otherwise he would take. But if the position is that the business community ought to be neutral on the political issues of the day, including invasions of other countries, and ought to not react if they thinks that invasion is wrong, then I would say, no, I think the business community can't be morally neutral on that. They have to take a position if it's really clear as to where the right and the wrong is. I would agree on that. We're talking about a discussion that took place right at the beginning of the conflict when maybe there was a more graceful way to negotiate it. I think wanting to find a way whereby the Russians could honorably negotiate an end to this, that's a legitimate thing to do. But if, if that's what your aim is, okay. But if your aim is, look, at this is not good for business, and this is a political issue, I'm a businessman, I'm going to continue, blah, 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 that's not good. So Frank Lloyd, as you think about the future education and the challenges we face, the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what are some of the important life lessons that you've learned and what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? I would say, first of all, the biggest threat I see in the United States at the moment is our society as divided as it is. And I connect that in important part with our having different realities. And, and I connect that in important part with Fox News. It's ridiculous in a sense to single that out, but it seems to me, I, I watch Fox News and, and I, that's a different world. So if you have a different worldview, you're going to end up with different answers to problems. So the, the, the first thing that I, that I worry about and I would like to fix is this notion of having different realities. And related to that is how do we reestablish the concept of fact? And how do we reestablish the concept of demonstrated fact or proved fact versus not, I don't know how to do that, but a, a lot, I think of that, if societies can't make decisions rationally, 
they're going to make bad decisions. And so I would say, even before you get to climate change, I worry about our societal efforts to decide important questions when we don't have common facts and when it's hard to take facts that aren't facts and expose them as that. So true. And as you reflect on the future of journalism, I don't know what is coming in to replace what was a golden age of journalism. There's some fact checkers, there's some independent outlets. And our impression of the world is very much based on what we see on the tube, understand everybody's. And so that matters a lot. We used to have a fairness doctrine, which was if you had a license to broadcast, either on radio or television. You you couldn't do that without a license. In order to get a license, you had to commit to a fairness doctrine that was the law of the land. That was undone in the Reagan administration. And I'm not sure that that was a bad move. I'm not sure whether it really made as much difference as it should. I don't know. But it was. we don't have either the fairness doctrine in place, nor do do we have the notion that we need one in place. Important to reflect on that. Frank, I want to thank you for being part of what me and I are calling a business and society podcast series, that we view you as one of the extraordinary personalities that for decades has navigated the world's largest corporations and most powerful governments and have redirected these giants for impact in the world. Your life has proven a prescient example to help the new generation compete in a time of swift and severe tensions. And we want to thank you for the service that you've had through all these decades. Frank Lloyd, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to talk with you. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Laurie Palmer. Digital Media Coordinator was Megan Lang. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.